0: This is episode 511 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. As I've shared with you time and time again, we are heading into troubling and turbulent times, both as the church and as a nation. And since we have all grown up in a world devoid of religious persecution, and even sometimes believe that God would never let a righteous nation like ours or a faithful church like ours face persecution, as strange as it sounds to even say those words, we are seriously unprepared for what will soon come our way. In fact, we are so unprepared, we don't even know which way to turn. But there is an example for us in Scripture, an example of believers like us who lived under persecution and even under occupation, and yet literally turned the world upside down for Christ. And that account of that church is found in the book of Acts. So join us today as we explore the people in the early church to try to find out what made them different from us and what can we learn from their faithfulness in the midst of turbulation, tribulation, and persecution that made them the dynamos that they were. And in doing so, we'll just grow a little bit closer to learning how to leave Laodicea behind. Before we begin, I need to kind of uh, give you a small little commercial here. Um, I don't normally do series most of the time. If you guys that have been here for many, many, many years, you know that I basically preach books of the Bible. For the last year or so, it's been different because of the circumstances we're facing right now, and I felt more inclined to preach kind of topical messages. But what I've never done is what, like a lot of churches do today, they're going to preach A series. This is a series on your best life now, a series on whatever. Um, I just, I really have never done that, but I am beginning today. Uh, For the probably next two or three weeks, we're gonna be preaching on a theme. And the theme is going to be coming from the book of Acts, trying to determine how they thrived during not so wonderful times. The gospel was born in a land of oppression, And uh, it thrived. It just absolutely thrived. So much so that one of the critics, one of the accusations made against the Apostle Paul was the fact that they have come here into this town, these men who have turned the world upside down. Do you remember that from the book of Acts? And more than anything, I think our society needs to be turned upside down. Wouldn't you agree? So with that that understood, this is going to be basically an introduction, but it's going to be an introduction, not necessarily in just a text of what we're going to be talking about, but I hope it's an introduction on helping you experience God's word. Um, I'm going to go back here to uh, this, from this incredible song. Oh, there's nothing better than you. There's nothing better than you, Lord. There's nothing, nothing is better than you. So we sing that song and sometimes we sing it with gusto. Sometimes we feel emotional when we sing it. Sometimes we just sing it. If you've seen the video uh, of this, it's a rather moving, emotional, powerful video of them singing this song with gusto like they really believed it. But this is a relative term. This is a term that's based on experience. We can sing this song because we know it's true in our brain, know Edo, know intellectually, know like a textbook, I know these facts and therefore I'm going to regurgitate them on the quiz on Friday. Or we sing this, there's nothing better than you, Lord, and I know it, gnosko, because I've experienced it. I've experienced the world, I've experienced everything the world has to offer, and then I've experienced you in such a way that you've eclipsed everything in my life. And so therefore, when I'm singing this song, there's nothing better than you. I just don't know it because somebody told me it was true, or I should believe it. I know it deep down in here. See the difference? When we know something gnosko, When we know something spiritually and experientially, then it becomes life to us. It becomes a foundation to us. It becomes something that the Lord can build everything else on. If we just say the words because they're culturally acceptable or because, you know, do you know Jesus loves you? Yeah, I I know that. I mean, the Bible teaches that. So, yes, I know he loves me. Do you know it here? Do you know it? deeply? Have you experienced his love? Well, no, not really. But I know he loves me just like I know, you know, George Washington was the first president of the United States and Julius Caesar actually existed. I know it by faith, but I never experienced it in my own life because when I do, everything changes. For almost a year now, we've been talking about the higher Christian life. The higher Christian life does not come by Edo knowledge. It doesn't come by knowing facts up here. When you go to seminary, what they teach you is facts. I've listened to, uh, I'm kind of a connoisseur of preaching. I listen to a lot of preaching, and almost virtually almost all the preaching I ever hear are communicating facts. Facts and they're communicating facts in a way that maybe moves you emotionally, so it's more than just some dry academic treatise, but the fact is, it's nevertheless communicating facts. But until those facts become real to us, embedded in us, that we know they're true, they're nothing more than facts. If I asked each of you to talk about the time when you were at 10, to talk about the time when you had a mountaintop experience with the Lord. To talk about a time that your faith just soared. It would always be an event or something took place. Or maybe you were studying or praying. And you now moved the reality of God from here to here. All of a sudden, I, I, I know God heals. And I've been praying for it forever. And you know, I, you know, I've even prayed for other people to get healed. But I never really cared that much about it and i remember my grandmother was struck with a stroke and we went to the hospital and the doctor said that she wouldn't even make it through the night and i prayed in such a way and i asked god to to heal her and i felt all of a sudden this presence overwhelming and i knew he was there and i knew he heard my prayers and i just rested in him and whether she lived or whether she died not the point, the reality was that I was overwhelmed by the presence of God, and I I just, I knew he had everything in control. And that's a high point in our spiritual life. And we talk about those, yeah, I mean when God did this, and God did that, and God did that, think about him in your life. And every time that happened, it's when you experienced the reality of what we know to be true up here. And it's not really true to us up here until it's tested and we experience it. This is just knowledge. This is life. Church is getting ready to, to head into uh, rather difficult times. You see this all around us. Our culture is absolutely imploding. Um, for example, I love this one. Superman. I grew up with Superman, the black and white Superman. Do you remember the TV show? Superman. Superman liked Lois Lane. Everybody knows Lois Lane. Superman liked Lois Lane. They had Jimmy Olsen, you know, hanging around there, kind of a strange little guy. And and Superman, every time he stood up, Superman stood for truth, justice. Remember the rest of it? And the American way, no longer. That's not been changed. Eighty years. Truth, justice, the American way. And they've changed that because the American way is racist, And so now it's truth, justice, and a better tomorrow. Really? Why? That's just the way our culture is going. This is a multi-million dollar corporation brand that is now changing all of this because that's the prevailing attitude of our culture right now. I don't like superheroes. I don't watch any of the movies. I haven't read comic books in 100 years literally, and uh, I have, but I follow the the trends, and in Superman, you know, Superman's older, and Superman's kind of tired, so Superman had a son, and so Superman's son now, if you follow the comic books, Superman's son now is kind of taking over, but in the August issue of the DC Superman comedy, but the son is really struggling because of the weight of being Superman on him, and it's really kind of tough to do. So he's found this friend that has this bubblegum kind of pink hair who looks a lot like Jimmy Olsen, and he's telling Jimmy Olsen about, it's not Jimmy Olsen, but a guy like Jimmy Olsen about how rough it is to be Superman, the August issue, the um, September-October issue. You know, they just kind of built their relationship. And the, the November issue that is coming out on November 8th Superman now enters into a bisexual relationship with his guy here, his friend here, the modern reincarnation of Jimmy Olsen. Really? Superman? How much of our population is statistically bisexual? It's not a majority, would you agree? But nevertheless, that's what's being pushed in our culture today. It is insane, the things that are going on. We talked over and over again about being a faith prepper. Well, being a faith prepper means that you have faith, but somehow that faith has to become real to you. So we test that faith, and we look at just promises of God, like last week about just the fact that he loves us, and we try to spend some time internalizing it so we not only just know he loves us, but I experience his love, I feel his love, his love is confirmed in me. Oh, how wonderful and glorious is his love. And all of a sudden, the things we know up here have to be brought down here. The key to surviving and thriving in the days that are coming are the fact that that book that you hold in your uh, lap. And by the way, again, I've told this to the uh, teenagers. This is a Bible. This is an app. This is a Bible. This is an app. This app has advertising on it. This doesn't. So we're talking about the Bible. When you look at his word, if it doesn't become real to you, if you don't experience it, then it's, it's just rule books. It's just Stories about people I have a hard time relating to is verses I memorize, but okay. But when it becomes live to you, because it is, it's living and active, the word says, it's pulsating, it's thriving, it it's can be internalized into your life, it becomes real to you. When it becomes real to you, you develop this hunger, this passion, this addiction for more of his word. And so, what we're trying to focus on and have been now for a little over a year, is to help us get the tools to experience his word, ah. You know, we talk about, did you ever have an aha moment with God's word? I did, when was it? It was either 2014 or 2015, I can't really remember, but I remember he spoke to me, really? The living, thriving word of God, and you haven't had an aha moment in six years? Why, It, it should happen every time we open his word, if we're able to allow ourselves to move beyond just words and experience him and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us, and that's what, we're, that's what, we're, that's what I've been trying to, to help us do. Best way to figure out how we're to navigate the times in which the Lord places us, and by the way, that's just being prudent with your life it's not doom and gloom, it's just being prudent, is to figure out, do we have a a picture of other Christians who navigated dark times in their lives? And the answer is yes. It's the gospel accounts, and it is the book of Acts. Tells us exactly how the early church thrived in persecutions we hope will never come our way. But it's more than just reading it. Instead, what you need to do is find out who these people are. What did they think? What was their mindset? What was their worldview? How did they hold on to the stuff of this world versus how we hold on to the stuff of this world? I mean, what were they like? What would it be like to to hang with somebody from the early church? Not necessarily one of the 12 or even maybe one of the 120, but how about one of the 3,000? that got saved in Acts chapter 2, and you've been with them for four or five or six months in Jerusalem. What would it be like to eat dinner with them? What would it be like to to see what they were like? Having a conversation with them. What do you think about this, Jesus? I mean, you lived in Parthia, and you came here because of the the Pentecostal holiday. You got saved, and you haven't even gone home. Why? What, What are you thinking? What's going on? What's What makes you do that? And then God's doing incredible miracles in their midst and people are getting saved daily. And there's this unity in the church that I've never experienced before. What is the power behind your faith to believe things like that? I mean, how does this even happen? Why are you so special? that God can use you to turn the world upside down, beginning in an occupied land of Israel, upside down for the gospel of Jesus Christ, literally in less than a generation. Why is that even, how is that even possible? What can I learn from you? I have things I'm committed to. I wear my Ball cap that shows what team I like, and I've got bumper stickers on my car that talk about what political affiliation I'm lying to. Yeah, I've got my own affiliations, things I'm committed to, but what about you? How is your commitment to this Jesus different than ours? And what can I learn about Christ from your commitment? These are key questions that we need to ask. And by the way, if we just rock on with our uh, Life like, oh, yeah, well, that was an interesting sermon. But, uh, you know, I've got life's just going to keep going like it is right now. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you any more than I've been telling you that that's simply not true. Another example, in case you're interested. The uh, federal government realizes they do not have the authority to mandate a vaccine and say, if you don't have the vaccine, you can't, uh, you can't work in private industry. They don't, they don't have that authority. And so they've gone out and Biden has said this, and what they're gonna do is they're gonna put the thumbscrews to industry, to make industry, private industry and business, the people that we work for, require us to have the vaccine, otherwise we're and just not pro-vax, anti-vax. It doesn't matter what they require. They can require you to wear a green shirt. And if you don't wear a green shirt, no job. And, I have a problem with that, but that's just me. But the fact is that, uh, so they're pressuring government to do that. It's not us, it's just government, just the airlines, just the hospital, just the healthcare systems, just you know employers with over um, hundred people, all that kind of stuff. And one thing we recently found out was that in the middle of this $3.5 trillion Build Back Better package uh, is a uh, provision The word vaccine and mandate and jab is not mentioned in that, which empowers OSHA. OSHA is the government uh, agency that basically regulates workplace interactions and what you can do in a workplace and what you can't, and how you treat your employers and how you don't treat your employers. There's a provision in there that basically says that if an employer refuses to mandate to their employees that they all have to have a vaccination. Or tested or whatever it is in order to work there, that they can fine the employer $700,000 per infraction. So, in other words, the government says, I can't make you do it, but I'm gonna put your business, I'm gonna bankrupt your business unless they do it. Now, this is not only for just uh, for-profit businesses. It's also for non-profit businesses. It means it flows down into schools and Christian schools, government agencies, including churches. Just slid up under the, uh, under the carpet like nobody knows. You don't think that's going to affect everybody? Everybody? And it's just buried along with 20 million other things we don't know about in this massive eight-foot bill that Congress is going to pass it. nobody, except the ones that wrote it, have ever read We're living in these kind of times. But it's not just in America. This is happening all over the world at the same time. It's happening in Israel. It's happening in Australia. It's happening in Italy now. It's gone with the passport. It's happening everywhere. It's like a worldwide agenda that's going on, empowered by, and you know who it's empowered by, the prince of darkness. And we as the church are supposed to be light in that. And that will never happen until we learn how to experience, like they did in the early church, this intimacy with Christ that transcends everything. So that we can literally say, compared to my job, my house, my family, my friends, my freedom, there's nothing, Lord, better than you. And I know that by experience. Until we know it by experience, yeah, there are things better than you because I've never really experienced you, so I'm going to hold on to my trappings of this world. you see our our problem? So what do we know about the early church? What do we know about the people that uh, Jesus led to him, the people that followed him, the people that were there in the upper room with him, the 3,000 that got saved in Acts chapter 2? I mean, what do we know about them? Some of this stuff I've already shared with you. I'm going to go through it really quickly. Some of this stuff, I'm just going to point you to a chapter or two that you need to read on your own. This is just basically an introduction. One thing we do know is that the disciples and all those Jesus called, including you. Church doesn't. Place the call of Christ like this because it thins the crowd, and the church doesn't want the crowd thin because we have a building to pay for, but the requirement and commitment are the same. Those who followed Christ left all and forsook all for him. We view that metaphorically today. They did not. I've shared these examples with you before. Matthew chapter four, Jesus is calling some of his disciples and it says immediately they left and followed him. They left their business. They left um, what they were doing. They left everything of this world that was important to them because they're now following the son of God, the Messiah who's finally come. We find the same account in Luke. Luke adds another word. Luke says they forsook all and followed Him. Nothing mattered but Him. Well, they still had to work? Absolutely. But the work was not their passion anymore. The work was something they did to feed their families so they could minister for Him. Kind of like what Justice read today, being called out into the harvest field as workers. So what does the word forsook mean? It's really simple. It means to send forth or go away, walk out of here, to let go from oneself, I don't want anything to do with you anymore, to abandon, to desert, to quit. And it's not necessarily mean that everybody who followed Christ is fed from manna from heaven. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about, the fact, is your possession and your identity cannot be tied up in what you do, but who you are that the reality is that, that the Christ is not calling us to do something, he's calling us into a relationship with him. Seek first the kingdom of God. That doesn't mean you don't also seek other things, but first you seek him, and then all the things we worry about are added to us. What kind of mindset did the early church have When you talked with them, do you think they would talk about their sheep herding business? Did you think they would talk about their little store they have hidden around the eastern wall area of Jerusalem and how much money they're going to be making during the Christmas season? Do you think they would talk to you about the... You know, political intrigue going on with Herod and the uh, Sanhedrin, or would they talk about how evil Rome is, or would they talk about the thing they just watched on television last Tuesday? Do you think they would talk about things like that? Or do you think a group of people sold out to the Lord Jesus Christ with a mandate to spread his word because Jesus was so real to them, they had experienced him, they knew people firsthand had experienced him. Do you think they would talk about the stuff we talk about? Or do you think there'd be other things on their lips? something less temporal, something more eternal. I mean, what did they have in them that we somehow don't have that they're willing to leave all to follow Jesus? Well, Jesus didn't say I I had to leave all to follow him. Yes, yes, he did. It just wasn't presented to us that way or we didn't really understand you know, to us, church is, I mean, Christianity is religion. Christianity is something we add to our life to make our life better. You know, if I get in a really jam, I ask Jesus and, you know, he takes care of it and I'm driving a car until I get really tired after 12 hours. And Jesus is my co-pilot. So I ask him to take over while I rest. And as soon as I'm awake, get out of the driver's seat, Jesus, I'll take care of this. I ask Jesus to season and to to bless my choices in life. Well, I've gone to the doctor, seen every specialist I possibly can. I guess there's nothing else left to do but pray. It's always been that way. My whole life, it's been that way. The Christianity was not something, our life with Christ was not something that overwhelmed you because then it makes you do weird stuff that other people don't like, like tell them about Jesus and like maybe the woman that discipled me, maybe realized one day that I spend more money getting my hair fixed to go to church in a year than I sent to foreign missions. So I decided from that point on until the day I died that I'm going to do my own hair, and it showed, do my own hair and give the money to foreign missions. Ah, Well, I can't do that. I mean, I got Netflix and I got the highest internet thing we got and I've got Hulu and I've got uh, Amazon Prime and I've got this and that and this and that and all my entertainment choices and stuff I like. That's just me. But you want me to sacrifice those things for the gospel? Did they understand something about Christ we don't? Had they experienced something with him that maybe we haven't? Was their life more intertwined with his than ours is, when you got saved, the same rules applied to you as they applied to me. Steve must die. It took me 15 years to come to the point that I was willing to die to get saved. That I just wanted to get out a hell-free card. I wanted a genie in a bottle. There's no way I wanted a Lord. A Lord is someone I surrender my life to. I submit my life to. He's in control of everything. And I don't want to turn control of my life over to anybody. So I'm going to ask you, Lord, to come into my life and save me and confess my sins. You've heard my testimony 200 times over 15 years. And the Lord said to me every time, I don't accept your offer. I'm not interested. I want all of you. And it wasn't to the fact that I received Christ on his terms, which is all or nothing. It's death. It's submission. It's buried in Christ, raised to a newness of life, born again, not you made better, that he accepted my prayer and called me into his kingdom. It's the same same truth that if you are truly saved you've experienced and then somehow we we lost it we lost the fire we lost the edge we started out as a 10 because we didn't know christ and you'll be now we know christ and gosh this is incredible and then over the years we just let it drift down to now we're down here in lukewarmville and we think that's okay The higher Christian life is how about just getting up to here? No, that will cost me something. I've learned to be comfortable down here with my own self-interest and Jesus marginalized over here. And If you had a test in school that would determine whether or not you would get a job or not, and the test was on Friday, and you knew you had an entire week of study, I can almost with certainty say that almost every one of us in here would spend whatever time's necessary to study for that test. And on Friday, after we took the test, we would talk about, oh man, I put the hours in. Telling you, I stayed up late uh, every night studying. Did you have a chance to spend any time with the Lord this week? No, I didn't. I I couldn't work it into my schedule because something else in this world was more important than Him. And we have a tendency as Christians, I know I do, to always kick him to the curb because he never complains. He never screams loud. What kind of mindset did the early church have? What enabled them to leave all and follow Jesus? And what did they understand that we don't? Let me just give you a couple. Number one, they believed in an earthly kingdom. Even to their own discredit, they believed that Jesus Christ was gonna make their life better on this earth. And he will at some point in time. The Jews thought that when the Messiah came, he was going to defeat Rome and then exalt everybody and make them all millionaires. That, that happens during a millennial, millennial kingdom, but they weren't aware of that. And even in Acts chapter one, Jesus had to rebuke them as he's getting ready to ascend into heaven after being raised from the dead because they're sitting here going, oh, we're still wearing the same clothes. I don't have any more money in my... Um, In my bank account than I did before, and you're getting ready to leave, and I'm still thinking earthbound like many of us do. The question. Therefore, when they come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time exalt us on planet earth to a place of of prominence that we want over our enemies and the people that have put us down? And Jesus answered them with a rebuke. It's not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. In our vernacular, ain't none of your business. That's the wrong question to ask. Well, what should we be doing? Build my kingdom, my spiritual kingdom. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you in just 10 days. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, And to the ends of the earth. Well, but we're not. or we don't really want to be because it costs us too much. Now, remember, we're sitting down with some early church members. We're asking them some questions. I mean, tell me how you think. Tell me what made you make the decisions that you made. How did you give all your possessions up and... You know, provide it to the church and everybody to live off that, and you're satisfied with living on everybody else, and that means you know you're not the boss anymore, and you don't have the big house and everybody. I mean, that's like communism. That's like socialism. I mean, how, how did you even do that? It doesn't matter. My kingdom, this my my self-worth is not tied up in how much stuff I have in this world. It's tied up with how many rewards and treasures I'm sending ahead. What makes you do that? What about you is different? I mean, what do you see and understand about this kingdom of God and this relationship with Christ that you've experienced that somehow I haven't? Number two, they believed in and they were looking for temporal blessings and eternal blessings to follow Jesus. Just like many of us, many in... Today, they think that, you know, following Jesus means our life's gonna be better on this earth. The, he might not be the best preacher, but the most well-known pastor in the United States is Joel Osteen, like it or not. And Joel Osteen, basically, got his following by preaching that Jesus Christ will give you your best life now. His book is a... Number one New York Times bestseller and has sold 30 million copies to be able to have my best life now because we we think the same way. We think that that somehow following Christ is going to make our life on earth better. But it's not. Matthew 19. This is the story of um, the uh, rich young ruler. So the rich young ruler, of course, comes up to Jesus as what, you know, I'm a good man, I've done good things. And Jesus, of course, says, and if you want to be perfect, this is verse 21, sell what you have and go give it to the poor and come follow me and you will have treasures in heaven. And he went away, sad, that's too high, not interested, because my life is to be spent here now. 23, Jesus says, and assuredly, Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Rich, that's what we do in our country. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Then his disciples heard it, and they were greatly astonished and said, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And Peter pops up and says, hey, Lord, we've left all and followed you. Therefore, what are we going to get? What's in it for us? Us. Tell me what my reward is. I've given away this business and this notoriety. I've given away my reputation in the town I grew up in because now I'm following some vagabond rabbi out there. So what's in it for me? What's in it for me? I can't see this heavenly kingdom. So tell me what's in it for our earthly kingdom. It's exactly how these guys lived until Christ got hold of them. We're not unlike this early church. Number three, like most of us, they had personally tasted, tasted of the power of God in their life. Enough to keep them interested and enough to keep them attracted, but not enough to change them permanently. You can look these verses up themselves. I'm not going to have, well, actually, let's do the Matthew 10. I will show you that one. Matthew 10 passage. I find this amazing. And it also follows through in the Luke 10 passage, which is a retelling of the story. But Jesus calls his 12 disciples together and he's getting ready to send them out. And so he's going to send them out with the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you and delegate to you something that you already have right now. Verse five, to these 12, he sent out and commanded them and saying, do not go the way of the Gentiles do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Two verses now, watch. Two verses of what they're supposed to do. And as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, I can do that. I can write that on my Facebook page. Kingdom of heaven is at hand, no big deal. That's easy. Second, verse eight. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. That's a little deeper than just writing something on my Facebook page. Freely received, freely given. Verse nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15 all deal with money and support and taking care of their lives while they're here. Two verses that talk about what you're supposed to do, supernatural verses, but that's not the biggest miracle for them. The biggest miracle for them is don't take any money, don't take an extra pair of shoes, don't provide for your own resources, I will take care of you. Because for men, that's the greatest miracle here. And they went out and tasted of the power of God. I will go to the Luke 10 passage. Look at that real quick. Verse 1, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. Oh, there's, okay. Okay. You can't sit here and say, God doesn't expect us to live like this because we're not part of the 12. This is an entourage. These are not handpicked people by Jesus. These are part of the group of the 120. This is us. Sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And here's what he said. The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. He doesn't even tell them now what he wants them to do. He summed that up earlier. Here's what he says. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, sandals, or greet no one on the way. But whatever house you went say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it'll return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking, and all that kind of stuff. Then he gets to verse number nine and says, here's what you're going to do. Heal the sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. One verse tells them what they shall do. And the other verses deal with the real miracle, how he's going to take care of us, how he's going to take care of our needs. Can I really trust? I can trust him to heal the sick, raise the dead and cast out lepers, but I can't trust him to pay my bills while I'm about his business. They knew this. They had tasted of it like we have in these miracle high points, but by and large had it choked out by the rest of of life. Number four, there's only five of these. They understood the importance of the kingdom, what Jesus was doing, or at least they should have. I suggest you read it yourself, an entire chapter, Matthew 13 on the kingdom parables. Seven kingdom parables, and every one of those parables line up specifically with one of the seven letters to the seven churches. It is shocking. It ends with a, a couple of them that are my favorite. A man who is in the market for pearls finds a pearl of great value, and so much so that he sells everything he has to just get that pearl. Nothing in life mattered, nothing that I communicated, nothing was important to me, but that pearl of great price, Jesus says that is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a field and in the field there's a treasure buried. And so he sells everything he can to buy that field because that treasure is far more important than anything he's accumulated in earth. Relationships, uh, prestige reputation money wealth riches it doesn't matter that is what's most important the kingdom of God they knew this they heard this teaching although I'm not sure it became real to them until the Holy Spirit fell last one number five they fully understand fully understood that the kingdom comes with trials persecutions suffering and death Trials, persecutions, suffering, and death. Book of Acts. You know the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus at that time, breathed that murderous threats against against the church, and everybody fled from Jerusalem. Think what that means. They abandoned their business. They didn't work for corporations. They didn't say, hey, you know what? It's getting kind of rough here for me in Atlanta. I'm going to talk to Bank of America, see if they'll transfer me to Boise, Idaho. It didn't work that way back then. They left their fields, their homes, their families, their friends. And they fled somewhere else. And God, of course, flourished the church through that. That's why when Paul would go on these missionary journeys, he'd meet pockets of believers. Where did you come from? Obviously from this dysphoria that took place from the persecutions In Jerusalem, trials, persecutions, suffering, and even death. How did they know that? Because they saw them crucify their Lord. They ran for fear. They huddled in darkness because they didn't want it happening to them. Not just the 12, but also that entourage. There were 70 of those that he sent out two by two that also tasted. You know, there's a bunch of the ladies that are there. They're the ones that showed the most faith. And he got them, but they're all scattered. And Jesus, of course, was alive, and it took him a while to believe that. And, you know, he met them several times, met over 500 people at one time, but nevertheless, they saw what he did. The early church was born 50 days after Jesus died. That's less than two months. And when you see your master murdered like that, you know Jesus told them what they did to the master of the house, Well, you don't think they're gonna do to the servants of the master? Count the cost. The church knew this. They knew it, and nevertheless, they embraced Christ with a passion and intensity that is really hard for me to get my mind around, really hard for me to, to, to understand what he meant to them. The early church experienced death. First, it was the death of Stephen. Then it was the death of others. And then Nero used to light his garden for his parties with, the burning, with burning torches made up of Christians covered with pitch had the Colosseums where they brought Christians out and just murdered them during the first 150 years of the church. Unbelievable things. It it talked about, early church fathers said that the church grew on the blood of the martyrs. We've seen this in communist China. The church was... Very small, and the statewide persecution took place, and the fluff burned off, and those Christians that were still there paid the penalty with their lives, and now the church is huge in China because they know it's real. They can trust someone because they bear on their body the shared brand marks of Christ. But if you read the book of Acts and all of these circumstances, the early church proved that they were more than conquerors, more than conquerors to Christ Jesus. Because I am convinced that neither death nor life, or do you remember that verse? Nothing shall separate me from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. How did these people do it? Men, women, and children. How did they do that? How did they live that way? What about them gave them that kind of faith? This is exactly what we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks. We're actually going to do a survey of some sections of the book of Acts and see how these people who really are less fortunate than every one of us in here we have Bibles, we have 2,000 years of teaching, we have the internet, we have Christian television, and Christian programming, and Christian music, and we have songs, we have churches on every street corner. We live in a society right now that we have, still have a freedom of, of worship, and we, we've got all the opportunities that they didn't have. We have jobs that give us the higher, highest standard of living of any people ever on planet Earth. We're so blessed compared to them. And yet somehow they were able to turn their corrupt evil world upside down, which is the exact mandate that we've been given to be light in darkness. The Holy Spirit's the same. They had the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. The atonement's the same. Christ died for their sins. He died for our sins. The rewards are the same. He's coming for them. He's coming for us. He's preparing a place in heaven to receive them to himself. He's preparing a place in heaven to receive us to himself. He's no respecter of persons. They're not any better than we are innately. We're smarter. We're more educated. We have a higher standard of living. We can devote more time to just eking out a living like they had to do working in the Palestinian countryside trying to grow vegetables for their family in the winter. We have every advantage over them, and yet they must have had something we don't. They laughed in the face of adversity. Not because they were crazy, but because they were confident. They had faith. They understood their God was huge because he was no longer a God just up here. I read that in rabbinical school and my rabbi used to tell me about that, but he was a God here, here. All through the Bible, and I'll quit with this, all through the Bible, God wanted his people to experience him. And then he wanted those to, to experience him, to share their experience with people who had not experienced him. I uh, brought you into the promised land. Well, we got across the Jordan River here. Well, I, do you remember what I did 40 years ago? Oh, you don't remember because most of you weren't around when that happened. But okay, I remember that. But the fact is you've heard stories about what I did with the Red Sea. We're going to do the same thing here with the Jordan River. I'm going to dam it up and you see the water kind of piled up. You're going to walk on, on dry ground. When you get on the other side, this wonderful experience that I've given you, I want you to pile a bunch of rocks, 12 rocks, one representing each uh, one representing each tribe of Israel, and when your children's children's children ask you, because you'll be dead, you'll be gone, you won't be around, there'll be no firsthand experience of this. When they ask you, what do these stones mean? I want you to remind them what I did for you so that maybe they can trust me to do it for them. Same thing happened at the fall of uh, uh, Jericho. And then they turned around and got defeated at AI because they let possessions and and read the stories yourself. Our children need us to experience God so we can explain it to them as a living entity and not just a group of facts that they need to believe on faith. We need to have that kind of faith and our God needs to be so big that we trust him to multiply loaves and fishes if it ever gets to that point. And that only comes by learning from the people that they actually live that way with far less than we have. The more I study this, the more I'm convicted. I mean, I've known the Lord for a long time, and I've been preaching for a long time, and I constantly try to grow in my relationship with him, but I am intimidated to the core of my being by this church and these people who, when their leaders are taken away and flogged, and beaten because they proclaimed the name of Christ. They were huddled in here just praying, and they come back in, and their prayer is this. God, give us more. Give us more. Give us more boldness. Move your hands so more people will be healed, that more people in this God- awful environment they live in will hear about the lord jesus christ and i don't care what they do to us and the church instead of cowering away and checking with their liability insurance the church rallied around them and prayed in such a way that the building was shaken and they were filled more with the holy spirit and spoke the word with more boldness who are these guys what can we learn from them if you would like, this week, just read the first, I don't know, nine chapters of the book of Acts. Um, take it up into the Damascus Road experience with Paul. and We're just gonna be talking about some of those events and the Sundays to come so that we can have the faith to realize that the God that they served is the same God that we serve, but to them, he was huge. To us, he's marginalized. And if we let him out of his box, he can be just as big to us and powerful and magnanimous as he was to them and even bigger, especially as we see things moving for his swift return. Amen? Let me pray.